The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot of the technology of that next wave, the XR, VR, the immersive technology, and frankly, innovations both on decentralization and the uses of generative AI um, are happening in the gaming industry. And you have these major parts of that industry that are massive and really important companies that most of you know the foreign policy world, for instance, has never heard of. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 10th, 2023. The Task Force for a Trustworthy Future Web was put together by the Atlantic Council for a sprint study of the future of trust and safety in the ever-evolving Internet. It issued its report at the end of June, The report is entitled Scaling Trust on the Web, and two of its members, Rose Jackson and Camille Francoise, joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk all about it. Rose Jackson is the director of the Democracy and Tech Initiative at the Atlantic Council. Camille Francois is global director of trust and safety at Neontech. They are two of many members of this star-studded task force. And we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about how the task force came to be, about the challenges and what has been learned about trust and safety from lots of areas to date, including and especially gaming. We talked about the challenges in the future as trust and safety scales to new ecosystems. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 10th. Can we build a trustworthy future web? So, Rose, I want to start with a little bit of history of this project. How did the Atlantic Council set out to create a report on the future of trust and safety? Thanks, Ben. It's An interesting story is very collaborative with uh, Eli Sugarman, who is well known from uh, the cybersecurity world and working from the Hewlett Foundation and now Schmidt Futures uh, in taking lessons from field building and the cybersecurity side, and particularly the national security world, uh, and moving it into uh, a a bigger understanding of this field. You, You say trust and safety. That's something that some of the people listening may have never heard of. So we actually, like taking a step back, have in our mission, I run something called the Democracy and Tech Initiative uh, within the Digital Forensic Research Lab. And one of 
you know, our core goals in looking at how so we look at how tech is funded, built and governed and that how that impacts the long term viability of democracy and human rights globally in that mission is trying to get ahead of the current trends of technology and look at what's coming and try and understand what we can learn from all of the work that's been done collaboratively in this ecosystem of civil society and industry and government actors all working together to try and address really hard things that have formed on the internet uh, in a world in which we are increasingly digitally reliant. And so we had for a long time been wanting to be able to dig into the questions around this next phase. Uh, and when we started speaking with Eli and his interest in understanding how the trust and safety field was forming or could be formalized for good or bad, the plan came together to do a sprint, uh, for lack of any better term, to try and keep up with relevance in the speed of technological change. And we decided that we were going to pull in Kat Duffy to help lead the charge as someone who had a wealth of experience internationally, uh, across industry, with global civil society, looking at the thorniest questions online, and wanted to pull together a cross-sector section of experts from all of these different communities um, to really look at what do we know from the last 10 or so years? What do we not know? What trends are coming that are going to fundamentally change or could fundamentally change the digital world we interact with and rely on? And what are the things that require urgent investment, attention, research, engagement uh, that will set us up for a better next phase of the digital world? Uh, and of course, one of those experts was uh, Camille Francois, who's joining us today. But it was really an opportunity to pull in a lot of um, the smartest people we could find in a lot of different sectors to be a jumping off point. So that's how the Atlantic Council uh, National Security Think Tank uh, ended up working on this fun topic. Yeah. So Camille, I'm curious how you conceptualize the field of trust and safety. Uh, obviously, it's one that listeners of the Lawfare Podcast's Arbiter of Truth series have some familiarity with, but what are the parameters of the field from your point of view? Yeah, that's the very exciting question, frankly, because I think those parameters are not fully set. Trust and safety has porous boundaries still. And, you know, I will say not everybody, including at the task force, agreed exactly on how to define trust and safety. At the end of the day, I think we can all agree that trust and safety talks about the set of practices, policies, tools, technologies, partnerships, and design decisions that practitioners do and take to keep products safe and to protect sort of their users of, you know, for instance, users of their products, right? So it's a field that just encompasses the different the different types of interventions that you may take as a tech company to ensure, um, yeah, the safety of your users. Now, the reason why I think it's exciting is we are at a time where the field is accelerating, structuring itself, and is really benefiting finally from real innovation at an accelerated pace, right? You can you can think about trust and safety in almost three generations, right? There's a generation of, of pioneers that, that really um, 
start realizing that this field needs to needs to exist. That's the beginning of content moderation, right? It's the early days of that wonderful team at eBay who's who laid a lot of the groundwork for what the trust and safety field will later become. It's sort of the first concepts of saying, all right, there's content coming in. Some of it is quite bad. Not all of it is legal. We're going to need rules. We're going to need operations. We're going to need tools to do a proper job at moderating it. Then you move to sort of a second generation of trust and safety functions, which are the large ones that that we've come to know, the, the Twitter trust and safety, the Facebook trust and safety, the Google trust and safety, the, those functions that really have created a lot of the concepts that we've inherited in the rest of the field and that have driven a lot of the uh, academic literature on trust and safety that really created a foundational role in helping get a set of best practices and structuring that field. My sense is that we're at the sort of third moment where um, we can see a third generation of, of trust and safety where people have the opportunity to build from scratch and to maybe change the rules a bit. This is kind of where, you know, Rose was talking about the parallels with cybersecurity. Um, as we know, in the InfoSec community, one of the big issues has been to come further upstream, right? To move upstream in the product development lifecycle to say security is not a thing that you sprinkle at the end. Really, you have to do security by design. And there's a lot of uh, movement right now in the trust and safety community to also do safety by design and to find those means, new practices, new ideas that allow you to move more upstream in the product development life cycle. So generally, you know, field with porous boundaries, generally we have an understanding that it's about protecting users. It's about securing product. It encompasses things like content moderation, the sort of classic example of what trust and safety does. And it's a really exciting moment for the field uh, because I think we're seeing a lot of acceleration and new innovation. Yeah. So one of the things I found fascinating about this report was that it treats a whole lot of areas that are relatively nascent, uh, like immersive spaces, federated spaces. You know, I run my own Mastodon server. How should the world of trust and safety think about that? Or I, you know, put on an, you know, an Oculus and I can go into spaces where you can literally literally in the context of the, the space, touch people. How should trust and safety uh, think about that? So I'm, I'm, I'm interested for, Rose, your sense of the parameters of the question that this report would, and this task force treated. Are you thinking about all immersive and, you know, spaces that are not owned by by anybody really or by or maybe owned by the individual user what's inside and outside the bounds of what the task force was thinking about here Kat likes to remind me that when, when we started the task force and when I asked her to come join us way 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 back in uh, September of 2022 chat GPT hadn't been released and the conversation that we were all having was about the quote unquote metaverse and the immersive conversation was leading what the next phase was. And everyone's hair was on fire about that. Uh, once ChatGPT and 
kind of consumer facing applications of AI were released, suddenly that was the conversation everyone was having. And so in the middle of this task force, we really had to be nimble. Uh, we got it up and running, I'd say, in February. So really at the start of that whole change. But that's an example of why we designed it the way we did. So what was out of bounds was things like the Internet of Things, IoT technologies. We weren't looking at biotech. We weren't looking at questions of quantum computing, et cetera. But we did want to look at the digital surfaces that people interact with. And we wanted to then identify within that what are leading technological trends. And this was part of the work of the task force was identifying the things that are developing in those digital interactive spaces that are potentially going to shift the industry and shift uh, that ecosystem. And we found you alluded to some of them. I'd say the three things we were really trying to contend with as future tech was uh, increasingly immersive and mixed modal technology whether that's uh, augmented reality or virtual reality. Uh, decentralization is a theme. And so that includes federated spaces like Macedon and others that you referred to. But it also includes a little bit of the conversation that if we hearken back to just before the metaverse freak out, uh, was very much looking at cryptocurrencies and blockchain, which is a decentralization conversation um, and something that the federated spaces uh, discourse fits into. Uh, and then the third was obviously... Um, artificial intelligence and the uh, uptick of generative AI uses in a lot of these spaces. And so taking those three trends, looking at how that impacts and shifts uh, the digital spaces we're in, what are the harms that it will, uh, that any of those applications would augment, increase, change, what are new things that we'd be dealing with. And so that was kind of the parameter that we set. And if you look at the, uh, the executive summary of the report, there are some kind of key takeaways uh, that I encourage people to check out that really got to these core questions of the fact that with all of these, the conclusion of the task force was that um, existing and known harms are going to scale. There are going to be new harms, <laughs> but that I think the most important, and it will sound kind of common sense or almost so obvious that why did we need to write it? Um, but that which happens offline will occur online. And in the same version of the world where we don't expect that in a rights respecting society where we have some freedoms and expectations of privacy and rights, there's no version of the world that you're going to have no harms. Uh, and if that's an expectation that we have in the offline world, we do have to start with that premise in the online world. And I think that's important to say. So a lot of what the task force was looking at was how the existing ecosystem of interactive technology that we have today, how does that shift and bend and what does that look like? if these three trends become uh, dominant and leaders in some form. All right. So that is a great segue to asking the question of what the major findings of the report are. <laughs> as, as you mentioned, uh, there is a convenient for those who do not want to read 150 pages. Uh, there is a uh, quite convenient summary section, but walk us through it. What's the oral version of the executive summary conclusions? Camille, as a member of the core task force uh, from the beginning, I, I really want to make sure that you're able to pop in with what you think are the most important takeaways. But as we said, our, we had four goals. So the first was to map systems level dynamics and gaps that'll impact uh, those online spaces we're talking about, um, highlight where existing approaches will not adequately meet future needs, and identify significant points of consensus across 
the community. So that's where the task force really got to set the agenda and then have concrete recommendations. We ended up with uh, key findings that kind of spread the following. So one was just that the trust and safety field itself as something that's emerging creates really important opportunities for collaboration. Uh, and just to double down on something that Camille said just a bit earlier, you know, the interesting part of the trust and safety field being this amorphous thing that's still forming. Someone on the task force said something that I thought was the best definition I've yet heard uh, of the space, which was uh, trust and safety is what companies call anything that when they have a problem they don't know how to solve, they throw it to. <laughs> and so it's the unsolvable sticky problems go to that team. Um, and as that forms as a field, what does that mean? Uh, we found that academia, media, civil society bring really important expertise to building online better, better online spaces and should be uh, integrated from the beginning for future online solutions. Uh, that protecting healthy online spaces requires protecting the individuals who defend them. And so that's really pointing out that there really isn't a version of the world where this is just going to be setting some technical system to police the Internet. That's, that's not going to happen. There will always be humans involved uh, and we are not going to be successful if we're not addressing the fact that they need to be safe and have resourcing, learning from mature adjacent fields will accelerate progress. And so we've talked about that already a little bit in terms of the cybersecurity field. I think today talking about gaming will be an example that the gaming industry itself offers unique insights uh, for innovation and learning that existing harms will evolve and new harms will arise, which I said before. Uh, systemic harm is exacerbated by market failures that have to be addressed. We really wanted to make sure that we were looking at this as an interlocking ecosystem uh, and understanding the impact that market forces have on all of these challenges. And finally, that philanthropies and governments can shape incentives and fill gaps. Um, and we were looking explicitly in this task force more at the philanthropic industry and civil society spaces and less in the government regulatory space. But the reason for that was part of the push factor that even creates this opportunity. We are at a genuine, I hate the term inflection point, but there it is. We're at a genuine moment. I think we have probably a year in which a lot of these things are going to become calcified. And part of that comes from the push factor of the European Union's Digital Services and Digital Markets Act that is making all sorts of changes in how the industry is responding and going from a voluntary more uh, experimental and collaborative structure within this trust and safety field to the risk of a more compliance-based structure. And so a lot of focus right now on how do you take the space that's created and the incentive change that has happened with that regulation and look at uh, every other actor in that ecosystem. So this really isn't necessarily focused on government options and government regulation, uh, though we do believe that's an important part of the system. And I think to the point that you just made, at the end of the day, we can see that we have a moment of technological acceleration and a lot of new technologies that are being deployed. And it's unclear, really, what our technological future and what are the mainstream usage going to be in the short term. We are all clear on the fact that we're going to have all the old problems. And that's already sort of a large bucket, right? That's child safety problems, that violent extremism problems, that's disinformation problems, hate speech problems. So we know those are here to stay. And we also know that we're going to have a lot of new problems, either completely new issues or issues that we had in the past, but perhaps in new formats or in areas that we don't know how to handle just yet. And so in order to, to face that situation, I think we're all saying we need to accelerate our ability to deal with it. 
we need to make sure that the trust and safety field can sort of go along that pace and be agile and rigorous. That means at least two things, right? The first thing is we have to agree on the wheels that don't need reinventing. And if you, having done that recently, if you have to start a trust and safety team from scratch, there's not really sort of an easy trust and safety in a box. Here's where you start. We haven't been very good at documenting those best practices, the tools that those teams need to do their work. A lot of them are still being built in-house from scratch. And so there's a lot that can be done if we align on, hey, here's a set of you know strong best principles, shared tools, shared methodologies, and all of that really still needs to be built and should be accelerated. And then the second thing, of course, is sort of thinking through, all right, where is methodological innovation coming coming from right now? Who are the people who are really trying out new field on the frontier, coming up with new ways to to keep people safe on online and on on digital technologies? And this is where I think the task force did a great job at, as I said, decentering our traditional idea of trust and safety and thinking about, all right, maybe a lot of the new things that are happening are coming from civil society or coming from what Thorn, an NGO, is doing on technology for child safety or coming from, you know, OnlyFans, for instance. We don't think about OnlyFans often when we think about trust and safety, but they have a large trust and safety team and they're also innovating on moderation. There are, you know, a lot of innovations that are coming from Twitch and from Discord and sort of it's making sure that as we look for ways to accelerate innovation and how we keep people safe online, we can do this in a way that has maybe a little bit of a wider aperture than what we used to have when we traditionally think about trust and safety issues from a few years back. All right. So Camille, I want to talk to you about gaming because this is a area that the report spends a lot of time on and kind of singles out as a case study and cautionary tale. Uh, so why gaming and why, why is it a sort of particular area of focus for the task force? Yeah, I think, Ben, the real person who should answer that question is Rose, because Rose and I met and had this set of conversations on like, wow, gaming is such a bigger deal than what people realize it is. It is for the future of technology. It is for the future of trust and safety. It is for its foreign policy implication. But Rose really here has been the the, the leader behind putting this at the heart of the task force work. So Rose, over to you. Why is gaming a bigger <laughs> deal than we think? Uh, yeah, anyone who's spoken with me in the last two years knows that uh, I've been on a soapbox uh, about the short-sightedness of, and I, I was guilty of this, I think because the gaming world is something that people either think of as like the kids' domain or this dangerous space that kids are operating in that they shouldn't, no one has seriously considered the the breadth of it. There's, you know, it's a $300 billion market. Three billion people around the world play games. It is uh, already part of our technological in an information ecosystem. Anyone who's ever heard of Gamergate uh, is familiar then with some of the uh, less pretty versions of how the gaming world and traditional social media have long interacted. But I think what people miss when you start digging in is that it's also this really rich space for, for learning for a few different reasons. One is in that kind of giant, those giant numbers I just said, you know, a lot of the gaming industry, the companies are located in the United States and Europe, Japan, South Korea, and democratic countries. 
increasingly investment is coming from China, uh, massive investments increasingly from Saudi Arabia and, and undemocratic countries. Uh, and as that ownership shifts, that means that those countries that have a particular viewpoint on the world, and I would say uh, countries that it's not controversial to say are pretty antagonistic towards the protection of basic rights, are increasingly setting standards and rules for how those companies might operate. I think it's also an industry that has for a long time had to deal with mixed mode interaction, right? You have audio, you have video, you have real-time engagement. Um, and that's something that we're starting to see become more of a feature in the existing technologies that we're dealing with and don't have great answers for how to keep safe while protecting rights. And I think, you know, the third part of that that people seem to miss on a more hard-nosed version of this is that a lot of the technology of that next wave, the XR, VR, the immersive technology, and frankly, innovations both on decentralization and the uses of generative AI um, are happening in the gaming industry. And you have these major parts of that industry that are massive and really important companies that most of you know the foreign policy world, for instance, has never heard of. A lot of people don't know, for instance, what Unity technology is. But it's one of two major what's called game engines that are required for building a lot of the content that people engage with. And it's one of the core things that you need if you're building, for instance, virtual reality experiences. And so as those technologies are getting used for everything from building buildings to designing cars to making movies, uh, as well as whatever the next phase of our connective tech looks like, it's kind of insane to think that we aren't taking it seriously or appreciating this massive market that's important enough that countries like China and Saudi Arabia have state-centric strategies for figuring out how to have massive influence and control in. And I'll add to this, I'll say, you know, you talked about, about gaming as a market. And of course, in the context of safety, gaming gamers are also audiences and communities that have long shaped safety online. You raised, you talked about how, you know, gaming communities are behind some of the bad innovations like Gamergate and sort of coordinated harassment. They also for a long time, gathered the biggest audiences on social media services, for instance, on YouTube, and they have adopted services, making them mainstream, right? When we think about new emerging platforms like Twitch or like Discord, those have been carried by gaming communities. So it had, there's been sort of a special relationship between gaming, gamers, gaming communities, and safety online for, for a long time, I think. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. 
it was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Isn't also part of the issue that gaming is one of the, along with, I suppose, porn, 
is one of the areas that leads technology into shared spaces, that you have these uh, these communities that arise over particular technologies where they can communicate, where they use more immersive tech, uh, you know, stuff that then bleeds back into the regular uh, internet industry over time. But, you know, a lot of graphical capability begins in gaming. Absolutely. And I'm going to throw to Camille in a second. But just to say this is, you know, Camille alluded to, there's also like positive use cases of lessons learned from the gaming space. And I think a, a major aspect of that is something that you're getting into, the, the interactive part. One of the things that has driven me insane about our conversation on social media writ large is this strange idea that the job of social media is to be completely neutral. The idea that we could build technological spaces where humans interact with one another and leverage technology for their own uses and that somehow that digital space is going to be entirely neutral. Gaming is interesting because it starts with the premise of intended interaction. Every part of the experience you walk into is designed to have limitations and encouragement around how people interact with each other, how people interact with parts of this digital ecosystem, and what tasks and actions and engagement you can have. And if you were to take that into a conversation on social media, I actually think you'd end up in a much different space. Uh, and there's a lot to be learned from that. What is it? What are the interactions that we want, that we want to promote and create? Um, because no matter what you do, whether it is a question of how algorithms are prioritizing what you engage with, questions of intentional design and product development, uh, you're making choices every single day as part of a platform about how people will interact. And if you're doing it, pretending that that doesn't have consequences on people's interactions, that's uh, a little naive. The gaming industry is, is starting from a completely different place. That has led to some really interesting conversations about things like pro-social design. Um, there's an incredible organization that we were really lucky to have part of this task force um, called the Fair Play Alliance. A woman named Kim Vole, who's been working from inside the gaming industry for many, many years, bringing uh, designers and other folks who sit in companies and are part of that to collaborate with each other on how to build healthier and better uh, gaming spaces, building on those strong points. And so I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you point that out, Ben. And I think Camille will probably have way more to add, but there's so much rich experience to learn from these much more complicated digital spaces that the gaming world, and as you correctly point out, frankly, the, the pornography industry uh, has had to engage with. So I'm curious about your sense of who's doing this right. One of the things that, uh, you, you know, you say that the gaming industry provides both cautionary tales and some interesting examples, positive examples. I'm curious when you look around at the landscape, where are the areas where you say, hey, that's impressive? Camille, you mentioned OnlyFans before, but what are the, who, who are the, industries and spaces that are being creative in this area? I think there's a lot of creativity and I and I love that Rose talked about the Fair Play Alliance and uh, the work that a lot of the gaming companies have done to build our ideas of safety by design. It's true, it's easier to work on these concepts of safety by design when, you know, your premise isn't that you're trying to design the town square for the internet or that you're designing all-encompassing spaces, Right. Working with this idea that you're designing specific experiences where there's an understanding that there will be rules of the road and you're trying to make sure everybody is sort of 
engaging along in the same design space opens up a lot of uh, opportunities. And because gaming is often community centric, I think that there's been a lot of innovation from the game, the gaming community on community centric ways to do trust and safety. So back in the days, for instance, Leagues of Legends had a player tribunal, which was a particularly interesting and odd way to think about, all right, let's actually, you know, do some form of participative democracy facilitated through a tribunal at at the at the you know level of a player community. Or an example that I really like because in my work I I often take the frameworks of the InfoSec community, the cybersecurity community, and apply them and stretch them into trust and safety. So I've worked quite a bit on how do you apply the idea of a bug bounty to some of the trust and safety uh, issues, for instance, to finding algorithmic harms, right? Like how could you design a, a bug bounty program that would say, you know, turn to us if you feel like you're being harmed in a systematic way by an algorithm. And looking into the first people who did that, I found that Rockstar Game actually did that with uh, GTA and HackerOne. So that's another sort of fascinating idea of, all right, there's sort of different ways to engage communities in this process of safety and to design community interactions for, yeah, for more productive spaces. I'll be the um, the, game, the game translator. Rockstar Games is a major gaming company that produced a game that many people have heard of called Grand Theft Auto that gets shortened to GTA. Sorry. It brings me great joy. No, that we're this is like for once, it's the gaming world having to translate to the foreign policy world instead of explaining <laughs> a bunch of DOD acronyms to the gaming people. <laughs> Thank you, Rose, for the translation. <laughs> so I think, Ben, the short stories, I think a lot of people are doing this right. And you know, what matter isn't like this person gets, you know, top badge of honor. It's really more actually let's decenter our perspective on where innovation comes from in these spaces and look back to everything that has been done, what it tells us, what we can borrow, what we can elevate to build best practice and what we can build on. The the other that's worth just highlighting and lessons learned there is that the, the gaming industry has long had, and we dedicated a section to what we called related ecosystems, and Camille has talked about this a bit, it's long had this tradition of building and using communities of practice and engagement, whether that's leveraging YouTube or Discord or Twitch, or frankly, long before that, messaging boards to communicate about games and build community around games. And there's some really interesting examples of major disagreements in those communities about the standards and rules about how people are going to engage with each other. That resulted in splits where people decided, fine, this message board is where we're going to have these moderation practices and you can be as much of a jerk as you want. And these message boards are going to be where we're a little nicer and you can self-select into what space you want. And so there's just been a lot of experience there that I think is analogous to some of the conversations we're having right now about the legacy social media space as people, as well as the lessons that Camille is referencing in terms of how companies themselves are playing around with and leveraging past experiences to, to address the broader online experience. Ben, I'll just add one, one thing because, because it talks to my nerdy heart, but <laughs> something that, that I think a lot about is red teaming and how we have slowly been borrowing red teaming from, again, the InfoSec and cybersecurity context and applying it to broader set of trust and safety issues. So 
you know, on, on my day-to-day work at Niantic, we do a lot of red teaming for safety. And so when we design a new experience, a new product, we're going to actively try to break it and understand where are uh, the potential vulnerabilities of how it's been designed to try to figure out, all right, how we can best address it. That's very fun to do in a gaming context because, of course, in gaming, you do play testing already, right? There's already this sort of step where people are play testing to try to see if they understand the rules and if the rules are clearer and if it's fun. And so you can sort of easily add red teaming to that and it works well in a gaming context. But it's also taking a huge life of its own in the context of generative AI. And when you listen to conversations around safety of generative AI, a lot of these conversations are around red teaming those new models, right? Trying to figure out, can we can we make it say something terrible? Can we make it produce something that it's not, you know, uh, able to produce? And how can we sort of poke at the system from the outside to see where the where the fault lines are and which ones we want to address? So the, those concepts, I think we see those methodological innovations sort of appearing not just in one sector, but sort of in, in different sectors at the same time as trust and safety becomes, again, a li- moves a little bit more upstream in the product development lifecycle. All right. So I want to uh, ask you both where you see the biggest dangers here. Uh, it sounds like, you know, a lot of people are doing this well. There's a lot of creative thought. Industries are being proactive about it. And so the the satisficer in me says, well, it sounds like things are pretty well under control. We're going to move into the brave new world, but we're, we sound pretty ready for it, uh, especially if we don't start with a zero harms expectation. What's the problem? <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> You know, I think we, there's there's two real conversations to have here. Uh, and of course, they merge because there's no version of a technological conversation where you can pull a thread and not unravel the whole sweater. But one has to do with let's not overstate the state of gaming. I, like it would it would be dishonest to have this conversation and not emphasize that there's been and continues to be a really serious challenge in the gaming world with sexism and racism, all sorts of harassment uh, so the same, the innovations for addressing those harms is what we're talking about a little bit, but there's also been innovation of harms in those spaces. And I think part of why we've said that you have to take this space seriously is that there is genuine risk that that itself can move into or be unthinkingly pattern matched into the social media and interactive spaces that more of the world is going to be interacting in. I'm going to let Camille focus on that a little bit. The national security side of the conversation, uh, I think the gaming world gives us a little bit of a microcosm of the rest of our ecosystem, which is we don't pay very close attention to or understand our information ecosystem as a thing worthy of examination and protection and rules. And in the United States in particular, we don't really have governance models. There really isn't regulation outside of Section 230, which is a liability protection that focuses on specific content. We don't have privacy protections. We don't really have rules or standards and clear understanding of how antitrust and consolidation questions apply in the technological space. Uh, And the consequence of that just gets more and more complicated as you add some of these uh, mixed modal contexts. So the gaming world is a, a great way to discuss that. And I think two big stories here. One, the gaming industry is undergoing 
a consolidation that looks very similar to what we saw in traditional social media maybe 10 years ago. So for every conversation you've heard in the last five years saying, well, the question of whether, for instance, now Meta, then Facebook, purchasing Instagram and WhatsApp, whether that is a problem, a consolidation of the industry. I'm sorry, you're too late. You should have talked about that when when the consolidation was happening. We're in that moment right now. I'll give a really uh, strong example. There is right now um, Microsoft, which, you know, a tiny little company you may have heard of, uh, has put into purchase and merge with Activision Blizzard, which is one of the largest gaming companies, which was already the product of a merger. To put this in context, Microsoft, if you're looking at a list of revenue generating gaming companies, is like third or fourth in the world of highest revenue. Activision Blizzard is sixth or seventh of highest revenue. So the number four and number seven largest revenue generating company, gaming companies in the world are merging. That That's, you know, pretty interesting thing to take a look at. The FTC uh, in the United States, along with uh, every other regulatory entity in the world, are examining this merger. And a U.S. judge, uh, when asked to weigh in on this, a week before uh, deciding that the merger could move forward, literally said, I can't believe that we're going through all this trouble for a video game. Judge clearly doesn't know (laughs) video games. Right, which I think... But you made the comment before, like, does she not know that the video game industry is is much larger, actually, than the movie industry? I think the answer is probably not. But I, like that to me is such a perfect illustration, like without even having to articulate where you come down on if it's OK for Microsoft to buy Activision Blizzard. Right. It's asking completely yeah. the wrong questions. Right. Like, let's let's take this seriously. And I think I I want there's one other thing that I want us to come back to, which is the question of foreign ownership and investment and the consequences of that, as well as really understanding China in particular. Just to be clear, Tencent as a gaming company is double the revenue of Apple and almost double the revenue of its closest competitor, which is Japan Sony. So there's these really interesting geopolitical conversations. But before we go there, you know, Camille can talk a lot about this, this Competition conversation that I brought in, you know, we can we can talk about it as antitrust, but there's also a much bigger discussion about what is the market and the set of solutions of how you actually do trust and safety. It's not just the companies building their own solutions. And so I wonder if I can pass to Camille to talk a little bit about this vendor community that I think is pretty invisible, but that's an important piece of this puzzle and affects national security and, and foreign policy and democracy and all the things we care about. That's great, but I also want Camille to come back to the original question, Sorry. which is what are what are the big dangers that she sees coming down the pike? Yeah, that's 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 a good question, and and I think there is a real debate right now on how well really are we doing on trust and safety, and we just had the second ever uh, TrustCon, which is the sort of industry conference for trust and safety predictioners. And there was this very odd sense of half of the room felt that trust and safety was really at risk as a discipline and struggling. And the other side of the room felt like it was really in a fascinating, upward, booming trajectory, sort of brimming with innovation. And it's it's highly likely that both of these things are possible, but it goes back to your to your question, Ben, of like what risks are we facing? I like what Professor Kate Klonick has coined the sort of end of the golden age of tech accountability. 
to talk about the moment we're in, which is to say, as Rose highlighted, a lot of the progress that were made by these companies, a lot of the new policies that were rolled out, the new transparency regimes that were put in place, the new tools that got invented, the new safety measures that got designed, a lot of that had been through voluntary efforts on the part of the company. There's not really a strong governance framework around that. And so it's true that we've seen a lot of these being rolled back and we have seen safety teams, for instance, being affected, particularly in the layoffs. We've seen uh, bipartisan consensus, for instance, on foreign interference uh, also being at risk. We've seen uh, what happened with Twitter, right? The entire Twitter trust and safety team really got you know, got got severely affected by by the takeover, and and I guess I guess we're we're now seeing X, but that's you know that's that's a huge loss of leadership for the entire field, and so that's the first risk, which is what we have is also quite brittle and lives in an economic and political context that doesn't really support the growth and the stability of the field. That leads me to the the second risk, which is when when we look at the field. Yes, there's, you know, what I said, the sort of third generation where there we can we can go further upstream, we can do safety by design now, we can learn, but the best practices are still not really documented. The tools and technologies that you need are not easily accessible. It's difficult to set up a trust and safety function from scratch. A lot of the knowledge that you need in order to do this right is absolutely trapped in silos, trapped in academia. And there's really a lot of insider baseball conversations that are dominating the field still. And that's not desirable. That's not desirable for innovation. That's not desirable for transparency. There's a risk that the field will sort of not, you know, give civil society and academia and sort of the outside world the, the, the space that they need to shape how we think about safety online. So those are risks that come to mind to, to your question, Ben, on, you know, what's, uh, yeah, what's, uh, what's, holding back our enthusiasm for where we are right now in trust and safety. All right. I want to close with a question of if you could see one thing happen, this is a giant field, one actor changes one thing. What is the highest impact? Uh, I mean, I noticed at the end of the report that you have a call for philanthropies and governments to get involved. Um, so what's the big thing that needs to happen in order for this space? Uh, I think it was Rose who said a, a, a number of minutes ago that we have about a year before things calcify. Um, so before things calcify, you get to whisper in one person's ear what they should do. Who's the person and what do you whisper in his or her ear? Well, you're you're asking us to reveal our, our private post task force conversations, Ben. I see you agree. <laughs> no, no, I'm asking I'm asking you to reveal the aspirational yes. post task force conversations, <laughs> not the actual ones. I mean, I would, I'll be the uh, uh, I'll take the <laughs> the unfair way out and say if if it's aspirational, then I'm gonna ask the Department of Common Sense. Uh, to take some emergency necessary actions on, I think there's two, two or three things that we really just don't pay attention to that are central. And I don't mean to dodge, Ben, it's just the problem is with technology, like there really isn't a version of the world. And this was part of the point of the task force. 
where there's a single actor or single sector that can solve these problems. Literally, no single company, no single government, no single civil society group, person, law enforcement agent, nobody on their own can address these things or build a world that we would want. And so it really comes down to uh, incentives and market forces, as well as ways that collaboration and information sharing happens. And so, you know, number one, the reason we were focused on philanthropy was to some degree, it's a little bit of a version of what you just said. Like, is there someone who could wave a magic wand and put resources in places that there may not be incentives to put resources right now? And the reason I had alluded to the vendor community and I had talked about consolidation of the gaming industry is because I think that there's this invisible community that are doing things like building models to be able to find hate speech and known terrorist content, that there's all of this work that has been done that, you know, relies on companies paying them (laughs) to do it. You've never heard of most of these companies. Camille's had to interview every single one of them to figure out which one can fill certain parts of her job uh, leading a trust and safety team. But they're venture-backed companies that are increasingly finding fewer people to sell to in smaller markets in an economic downturn where the tech industry is laying off trust and safety workers. And so I'm not certain that if we don't find other models to support that kind of innovation and to support that technology and the maintenance of it, I'm not convinced that a venture capital backed market of vendors is going to fill the need at this moment. And this moment being where the DSA is making, the European Union is right now making all the decisions on how the Digital Services Act will ask companies to structure themselves, show information about themselves, have a responsibility towards doing some of these trust and safety things. And I don't know that we can, we're we're about to like build an ecosystem that isn't sustainable. That scares me. And so I want the Department of Common Sense to build a better market and better incentives for those entities and communities, including global civil society that knows from the beginning and is asked by every single one of those vendors, companies, governments to tell them what to do and to feed information in. Those are the two things that I think if we don't prioritize, we are in trouble. Camille. I think that's exactly right. I think if you consider all the tooling and technologies that's needed to properly keep people safe online, that that part is massively under-resourced. There's a lot of um, will reinventing. There's a lot of uh, uh, market failures uh, throughout the entire tooling and technologies, again, around trust and safety. And, and I think that addressing these would, would make a huge impact. I'll also say I've had the great honor to teach trust and safety over at Columbia University. And I, I think that academia here will also have an important role to play. I'm very inspired by the next generation of students that are coming in, the new generation of practitioners who are coming in eager eager to learn, to, to transform, and, and to, to change some of the assumptions that, that we've had on how can we push tech to be more responsible and to, to better take into account the downstream effects of, of, of the technologies that, that were deployed on, on society. I think that's going to also be an important investment. Let's make sure that uh, we open up the gates of the field, that we don't you know trap knowledge in silos, that we avoid the inside, insider baseball, and that we can really make a transparency effort on what's currently being done, how has it been done, 
what's working and what's not working. And as Rose said, urgently address the market failures for all the all the tools and technologies that that need more support, need more resources, and maybe can be shared across different different teams and actors and organizations. We are going to leave it there. Rose Jackson, Camille Francois, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Ben, for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode, as ever, were the good folks at Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, speaking of good folks, be a good folk yourself and become a material supporter of Lawfare. You can do that at lawfaremedia.org support. That's lawfaremedia.org support. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.